I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time here in the show, well, I've got good news. It's a really simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this show, whether it's a teacher, a coach, a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please do be a part of this show and tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with your nominations to teacherslounge at niu.edu and send your story ideas that way too. This week on the show, middle school English teacher Aubrey Barnett steps into the teacher's lounge. She just finished her first year at Flynn Middle School in Rockford, and it was kind of a culmination of her work in mental health, her work at a more experimental school, and now here she was at a huge public school wondering if those convictions about education were going to work there. I was really terrified this year. This was my first year to put it where you say you got it, and I don't know for sure that meaningful relational creative learning yields test results. I know that people of my belief in academia say that. I know there's a lot of literature that says that, but you don't know if you're gonna get that. We'll hear more about her teaching philosophy, the learning model that transformed her eighth grade classroom and why she got into education in the first place. That and more coming up. Before our conversation with Aubrey, I wanna talk about equity in education through a few distinct lenses developmental education, and students with physical disabilities. Next year, Illinois schools that teach sex education will be required to follow updated, more inclusive national standards. But some educators say that sex ed has never been inclusive for students with disabilities. And I got to report on how educators are trying to make it more equitable for students who are blind or have visual impairments. Sex education is almost always taught visually. Students are given worksheets with diagrams of human anatomy. They watch videos about the reproductive process. None of that helps blind students much at all. Galen Kaverman is a professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University, and he spent decades teaching in the College of Education's Visual Disabilities Training Program. Kaverman is also blind. It is extraordinarily unfair to have only blind youngsters totally ignorant about one of the major aspects of being a human being. Kapperman and NIU visual disabilities professor Stacy Kelly helped author a guidebook for teachers in 2019. And Kelly says they conducted research asking visually impaired adults to reflect on their sex education experiences. They did not have meaningful health education experiences. They had to figure things out on their own or they were misinformed or they misunderstood. There are ways to teach sex education to visually impaired students, but Kapperman says that's where they start getting pushback. That's because these methods include using anatomically correct 3D models. There are tangible models of genitals as well as other health processes like pregnancy. They have special kits to explain birth control and vasectomies too. Their research and other educators say it works, but Kapperman says the resistance educators who teach visually impaired students get is about the genital models. They're supervisors who don't know anything about teaching blind youngsters, forbid them to use these realistic models because we don't know for sure, but we think view this as pornography for the blind. Kapperman says the models are necessary because visually impaired people can't fully interpret complex 3D objects like anatomy through audibly explained videos or tracing their fingers along a raised outline of an image. That's because it's impossible to grasp the perspective of a 3D object from a 2D plane, hence the models. 
Professor Kelly also says access to health education is crucial because children with disabilities are far more likely to be sexually abused than their non-disabled peers. Really what it all boils down to is that knowledge is power and when our students who are visually impaired don't have access to that knowledge, they are less empowered, unfortunately, to no fault of their own. Teachers of visually impaired students use a resource called the Illinois Instructional Materials Center to share often expensive equipment and materials like accessibility software. Kapperman says he's been urging the Instructional Materials Center to purchase sex education models and kits. Greg Pullman is the senior vice president of public policy at the Chicago Lighthouse, which operates the center. He says they hadn't heard much interest in the models until recently, but that they're effective tools. The center hopes to purchase some kits soon. In Illinois, sex education still isn't totally required, even for sighted kids. But schools that teach comprehensive sex education now have to align their curriculum with national standards. The 2021 law mandating that is SB 818. It was criticized by Illinois Republicans and even some Democrats. They claim it teaches students about certain sex concepts too soon. The new law also says that course materials and instruction have to be accessible to students with disabilities. And for visually impaired students, they also have different, more simple and age-appropriate kits for lower grade levels that include things like ragdolls to teach basic health concepts. The guidebook Kapperman and Kelly put together aligns with those new national standards, too. The bottom line, Kapperman says, is that blind people have sex. It's occurred to him that some people might somehow be uncomfortable with that. Why should blind people have sex? And they're blind. (laughs) As a blind person, I resent that attitude a lot. And he wants to make sure that visually impaired students are just as prepared for it as their sighted peers. And now equity in developmental education. At Illinois colleges, a large number of students are placed in developmental or remedial courses. And the new law looks to change that because students in those classes often can never make it out. Developmental courses are just like any other college class. They cost money, they often take a full semester. The only difference is that developmental classes don't earn students any college credit. Around 40% of high school graduates who start at community colleges are put in at least one developmental ed course. And when students enroll in these courses, it can be really hard to advance, move on, and graduate. In Illinois, only one in five community college students put in developmental ed will graduate. Lisa Castillo-Richmond is the executive director of the Partnership for College Completion. They're a nonprofit focused on equity in higher education. And she says that developmental classes often become the first and the last stop on a student's college journey. And she says minority students are the ones most likely to be affected. Black students are twice as likely to be placed into developmental education courses than white students. And once they are placed in these courses, are significantly less likely to complete their introductory 101 college-level courses. In fact... Only 18% of black students finish their 101 math course with a C or higher in three years. The Partnership for College Completion advocated for the new Developmental Education Reform Act. Before the act, almost every community college in Illinois still implemented the traditional model for developmental ed at some level. But how do students get placed in those non-credit courses? Well, typically, a college would look at an incoming student's ACT or SAT scores in math or English. If the scores didn't reach a benchmark, students would come in for a placement test. And if those scores didn't reach a benchmark, they'd be sent to a remedial class. Amanda Smith is the vice president of liberal arts and adult education at Rock Valley College in Rockford. She says just prior to COVID, nearly 20% of all courses completed at RVC 
were developmental. That's just an astonishing number of credit hours that students are paying for and enrolled in that don't go towards their degree or certificate. She says they were over-relying on high-stakes AccuPlacer placement exams. Most students who took the AccuPlacer failed. Thanks to the reform law, colleges had to submit plans to the Illinois Community College Board in May detailing how they were going to change their developmental ed policies. Castillo-Richmond and the Partnership for College Completion have been holding workshops for colleges that are changing their remedial courses. Those reforms happen on two fronts, placement and class delivery. For placement, instead of just looking at standardized tests and exams, they consider high school GPA and transitional classes. Amanda Richmond at RVC says they've been doing it for a few years. Then the pandemic hit and they went even further. Placement deferral. Students can take up to 12 credit hours worth of classes before a developmental course. So if they're successful in those classes, the college assumes they'll be fine and waives the referral. What we found was pretty fascinating. We found that the students who had completed this deferral form were not having detrimental experiences. The new law doesn't specify what reforms colleges actually have to make. With class delivery, Castillo-Richmond says co-requisite models are the most successful. That's when students are placed in introductory credit-bearing classes along with layers of extra support. They might have an additional hour of tutoring after a lab or meet more often with their professor. Plenty of colleges already offer co-requisite courses, but usually not scaled up to include most of their developmental ed students. Jessica Moreno is the Dean for Academic Support at Wabonzi Community College. She says they started offering co-requisite or co-rec courses in 2018. We have been increasing the amount of co-rec courses, especially in English. We have lots of success with our English co-recs. Over the next few years, colleges will have to report back to the state on how well those reforms are working. And whatever models colleges end up choosing, Castillo-Richmond and the Partnership for College Completion hope that they're available to every student. So developmental ed will no longer be the first and last stop on their education journey. Okay, now it is time for my conversation with 8th grade teacher Aubrey Barnett. And we start off by talking about her unique experience teaching at the very beginning of the pandemic at Spectrum Progressive School. In March of 2020, because it was such a small school and an innovative context, I went to teaching full-time every day online, but I didn't do Google Classrooms. I literally ran Zoom calls all day long and I did small groups and I scheduled kids all day and I never got off calls. And I did, and I taught the constitution. And you can look up my podcast. I interviewed, I had my kids, they had a podcast called Z Noodles. It's 25 episodes on YouTube. We interviewed Mayor McNamara via Zoom. And we interviewed Dick Durbin via Zoom during, literally during a global pandemic. Dick Durbin got on with my kids, my kids, and was like, let me give you the message about, and like, you can watch our senator basically give all the right answers back in the day when it was still May of 2020 and give really good advice. And my kids asked in interview questions exactly what you're doing. We developed a video podcast. It was incredible. It was, it, they, they named it, they ran it. You would love it. You would love it, Peter. I love that. What was it called again? It's called Z Noodles. But if you go to Spectrum's website, yeah. it has, if you go to their YouTube channel, we have our own sub whatever. And we literally, we did um, the place that does um, 
that Hawk, Skylar Hawk, who does the record shop. We did him. Yeah. We did the lady from the news. We did the guy from the Ice Hogs. We actually had Pistol Pete, who's from Rockford, this black guitarist who's traveled the world. He wrote our, his own song based on the Chicago Baby Don't You Want to Go, but he did Spectrum and he played it for us and we put it as our intro. So we had our own like genuine like musical artist write us. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. I really wish I would have known about this in the moment now. Yeah, well, you know what? It's not a, it's the kids who participated in it in that way. Like, not only is that a professional thing, but forever, they're going to have my, my, when I was first in Chicago Public Schools writing grants, my argument was around digital footprint. Look, listen, kids have a digital footprint these days. They're on social media left and right. We know colleges are looking. We know high schools are looking. We know jobs are looking. How about we actually train them to have a digital footprint from day one where you find their name and there is all of the work that they've done as a young professional so that there's at least something to balance it out in that way like at least it would be impressive like well yes this but we could forgive that because that's everybody look at this body of work so that at spectrum i was able to achieve that at a pinnacle again i, I just blows my mind that we got interviews with those people at that point it was amazing that is amazing whoa i, I had no idea about Pablo that Carana, these were the artist he was amazing anyway that is wild. Yeah, I, I will make sure to stay tuned if we have a Flynn podcast next year. Oh, I, you know what? If I could get those kids to do that, that would be truly incredible. Like, that's the goal, right? That's the whole point in some ways. Um, they might get there. This first group with COVID, there was just no chance. Um, they needed so much social-emotional reconnection, so much trust to rebuild, and they had so little relationship with each other as eighth graders when they're supposed to have had this kind of intense three years. And um, they didn't have enough confidence to do that kind of work in front of each other yet. I know. I know. You just had your first year at Flint. It was, a, it was still a heck of a first year, though. You guys got a lot done. Are you at least enjoying your summer as of now? Like, how's it going? I, great. First of all, I had to, when I first came in the district, I had my master's degree, but mm -hmm. there was some kerbubble both between A, my fault, the transcripts I sent them, even though they were complete, didn't list the degree at the top. So they were a little confused, rightly so. And I didn't realize because they were very, like, early transcripts from that master's. Um, and then they also are very particular in Rockford Public and maybe rightfully so, they want people to have degrees in education and my degrees sure. in counseling. And they were like, well, that's not an education. But then this entire year, what was beautiful is they delivered professional development to me and required me to get the exact same training that I got on my inpatient unit. So I was able to do, I did a coursework justification and created like proof of who I was as a teacher this year and asked for credit for my master's and they granted it. So I feel like I'm on cloud nine because now I can come back and do this work and want to be in this district in a long haul way that says this is actually really viable and meaningful. And so I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. So like yeah. that's good news for me. I'm just like riding into the summer with like, that's great news. It's a, it's good. I'm curious for you, just like looking back on your first year, like what are some of the big takeaways that you have about how everything went there? There was something I really should have expected because I've done the research and I know the numbers, but I did not have any lived narrative context for what it would mean. And that is chronic absenteeism, mobile populations where you really do lose a number of children, constant in school and out of school suspensions, and then expulsions. Yeah, Those, and which we've covered on this show, which Rockford is always near the top, if not at the top of the stadium. 
it's just it's it's the, the combination of those four things in that way of that sense of and that's why Rockford's done what they've done with their curriculum. They're very structured and they want all the quarters to be the same and they don't want people to read too many things outside the plan, especially within grade levels, because they know that kids move around so much. They want a kid to be able to move between schools if needed, because that's their family life and not punish that kid by starting a totally repeated curriculum because the next teacher doesn't do the sequencing the same way. So they've actually seen around some interesting corners and they're trying to do some work strategically um, that is kind of, you know, important and responsive to that population. But it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I know. And I've, I've, I've done reporting specifically on chronic absenteeism, because I remember that was one of the big data points that got picked out last fall when the state was releasing their like reports about the first two years of the pandemic. And I remember seeing the student mobility rates, too. And I, I don't think those were particularly a part of those statewide data sets, but you can see all of that. Like, for, <laughs> you know, Aubrey and I are very familiar with this because we think about that, you probably more than me, but like, if anyone's ever curious about school data in the state of Illinois, like the Illinois report card is a really fantastic tool if you want to dive in and that, that kind of thing. But yeah, I remember looking at, at student mobility, which, right, is, is the idea of, of students moving between different schools throughout the course of the school year. And I was really interested in, in how much of an impact that made, like what really is the impact of that on students' day-to-day lives and, you know, uh, their learning experience across the course of a school year or several school years. And I, I honestly did not get very good answers about what that is, and I'm kind of still seeking that out, but I'm curious about, about what your experience was with it for the last year. It was heartbreaking to watch them leave. I had several students leave, um, some as early in the year as like October because some zoning issue. I had students who, you know, were using different addresses and you kind of knew it. Um, I had ones whose families were moving. I had divorce issues and watching those kids go and having to say goodbye to them and not having the proper way to do that. And sometimes you really didn't know if they were going to leave or not and having to work through those conflicts and relationships and conversations and what their friends are saying and what their social media is saying. Um, all of that is like, just, it takes up emotional space and energy in a room and you don't want to brush children off the side and go, well, okay. And let's go back to learning, but you have, you have to address it. And then you got kids who come in and you don't know. And you, if you have really good established relationships, they can see pretty quickly. Oh, this is, this is a teacher who it's worth. There's some social capital here, but cultivating something and starting with a personality all over again from the beginning of the year that invites that is really hard. It's, it's, you know what I mean? To, to readjust because you're in a pattern of a relationship now with kids where, does that make any sense? That was a very long answer, but. No, for sure. Yeah. And like you said, it it's, makes it even more important your work about establishing those relationships when you're having kids coming in and out throughout the course of a year. And I remember you, you I think you already mentioned in this conversation that, that you have a background with mental health and, and working with, um, you know, working as a mental health professional for, for kids before you got in the classroom, right? Yeah, I actually, I was in the classroom in Chicago public schools and I realized the relationships were everything. It was like, oh, especially with the, and I was being evaluated using the same Danielson framework that I'm using now that Rockford Public Schools uses. And I came up against an administrator. It was like, rah, rah, didn't work. And I walked away. I was like, I blaze a glory, young version of me was like, mm-mm. And um, I ended up going back and wanting to get my master's in this work. I got my degree in pastoral counseling. Um, that's something that's really tricky to talk about in this field. It's tricky in the counseling world. And in that three-year full-time 
Loyola program, we spent a great deal of time going, how are we going to address that word when people ask you? And now we've come to education and it's even more like, ah, but what that means is spirit. You know, we had like, I just saw the new Buzz Lightyear movie. And if you look at the Disney plus special, that's all about the guy who created it. He talked about wanting to to create a story that related to the human spirit where any child and any person could really be there. It's the Lucas journey of the hero, right? It's, it's, it's George Joseph Campbell and um, children need to know that they can be the hero of their own journey. And yeah. I certainly felt that I was, and I could be, I had that ownership over my story. And so I sought to find a way to do that better. And so I worked at Alexian Brothers, which is the only freestanding mental health care hospital in the state of Illinois. That's really significant. And I didn't take the path of bereavement or kind of some of the other things. I went clinical inside a pastoral program. I was the oddball because I went to a hospital setting and did all of this very diagnostic insurance-based work where I was running groups. And I specific, like specifically ran groups for kids who were school anxiety and school refusal. So kids who hate, hate it, who got vomited, got nauseous, you'd have to call the cops on them. Um, they just simply wouldn't go or they, they just had these paranoid thoughts. And we did exposure therapy to get them to be able to come back to school. Um, and then from there, I moved to inpatient because I kind of felt I needed and wanted that challenge. And what I loved about inpatient work and what I crave, what I love as a person is I love getting authenticity. I love really actually going, hey, this is a 14 billion year old universe from what we can tell or multiverse, Dr. Strange and kids <laughs> like that, right? And we are somehow here looking at each other, staring at each other in the eyes, having enough language to look around or make art or play sports and be alive. Wow. And when another human being looks at you back and a child can reflect back their wonder in the world, it's everything. It's everything. And when you're on an inpatient unit and children have been pulled back so far where they're so very vulnerable, you basically get to be that person in a sacred space with them to recraft a sense of willingness to live or a sense of reality in which to live in. Um, and so I, you know, it's fun, funny ways on an inpatient unit, kids come and go all the time. Discharge happens any given day when a psychiatrist decides and you're constantly closing out and starting anew every single day. So in the odd way, I really do believe that my own journey and the work that I've done every step of the way prepared me. I would not be the teacher I was at Flint. I could not do this work if I hadn't had the training that I had. It's simply been critical to my ability to do it. Yeah, I mean, how could it not be? I'm curious, like, so you, you were a teacher at Chicago Public Schools, left blaze of glory, getting out there, inpatient, doing all this work in, in mental health services. And then at some point, you decide you have to come back. Talk about the hero's journey, right? Like <laughs> Talk about Joseph Campbell. It's a, a big part of that is you have to come back home. What makes you want to come back? From the time I was really little, I was one of those girls who wanted to be a mom. You know, we're living in a really interesting, wonderful day and age when women no longer feel obligated. Um, Funny enough, we're just on the heels of Roe versus Wade being overturned in this moment. A lot of emotions around that. Um, yeah. Complex, you know, we are, they always knew the Constitution was a big question mark. They never really thought it would last as long as it has. It's been a big experiment, and here we continue to go. Um, and I wanted to be a mom, but I had some issues getting pregnant. I did IVF um, in order to have my twin daughters. And uh, once I had had children, um, it became more important, and I, I, my family, my mother's also an educator and our family is really committed to children and to education. And we were looking for the right thing. 
And when I found Spectrum, I was working on the inpatient unit. It was like 1030 at night. And I discovered their website and I knew instantly, instantly that these people got it. They just got it. And their website was atrocious. It was heinous. I mean, it was embarrassing. It was like, it was like a middle schooler had made it. And it was like, oh my God, but the content, man, oh, Sam. So um, we picked up. What spoke to you? They knew that it was about the like multi-age. They knew that children were not supposed to be grade level. They were about multiple intelligences. They Mm. knew that children would not achieve smartness in a single way. They knew about Piagetian social development. They cared about social emotional learning. What I love the most though, is that they love the environment. And they, where it's at, the building it's at, the kids are in the woods all the time and they're like in the prairie. And I I love it. I am a born and bred child. I got to go there one time when they were doing their like outdoor Christmas concert during the pandemic with, uh, you know, and they were like deer running in the background. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Chicago girl. I competed in Illinois History Fair in sixth grade. I won at nationals. I spoke as Lake Michigan. I told the history of our state through water and through its waterways. Like I know Rockford. I know Mississippi River. I know I love this state. Um, and people in Chicago look down on Rockford. When I left, they were like, oh, ugh. Like really all my friends like you go block, you know, and I have fallen in love with it. I think that people really, I love that Jane Adams is from here. I love the history. I think there's just too much dismissiveness and on top of all of that, the beauty of nature, Mano Sam. So I moved here for Spectrum and I fell in love with Spectrum and they just happened to needed a middle school teacher. And I decided to jump into something that I loved from a really different perspective. And I got to kind of experiment with heaven for three years, you know, the, the things that we created, what we did um, all the way through was just a tremendous experiences. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You talk about how like your experience working in mental health prepares you for what you do now. I think it's even interesting, too, about like, like you said, like getting to step from that initially into spectrum where it is a much more you know experimental creative model and be able to like hone in on like okay what works and what doesn't work and then take that into what people would think of as more like traditional structure like in a public school system a very big public school system like you're in now yeah people think either a you know what you do at spectrum can't be replicated because the kids or the parents or the numbers the system or whatever right fill in the blank and um you know, people really don't talk badly about RPS, although, you know, there's this nasty little secret about private school pay, which is it's really, really bad. It's really bad. It's way worse than public school pay. Um, and so people at Spectrum know you go to you go to RPS to kind of actually live a life and survive as a parent. It's a joke, <laughs> yeah. but it's not. It's not. So um, and but many, also, many yeah, get, get your money, right? Up, mm-hmm, they end up in RPS. Yeah. So um I kind of, and I, this is a social justice call. It was the call for social justice. And the fact that that's when I first started in education as an undergraduate at Knox College in Galesburg, stop on, on the Underground Railroad, also the only standing site of it, the Lincoln-Douglas debate left in the state. So just saying Knox College. I feel like you're not the only Knox College teacher we've had on this show. Yes, I feel like there's been a couple of them. <laughs> Like that's Knox College has been turning out teachers in this state for a very long time who are of a progressive mindset that are trying to abolish slavery and to bring social justice. I want to say Maurice McDavid. I don't know if you know him. He's from DeKalb. I believe he's a Knox College grad, was one of the very one of the very first guests on the show and actually has 
his own podcast along with another person who was on the show, another educator. They're both in West Chicago now called uh, Black, Brown, and Bilingue that is uh, really excellent. So they, they, they have their own education podcast, and so one of them is a, is a Knox grad too. Do you know, I remember being at Knox as must be 19 or 20 and having, um, they had a Black Studies or an African-American Studies space and building a major. And in this really embarrassing way, I remember being like, that's a major, you know, in this silly kind of thing, even though I was in Chicago and I was part of, you know, the LGBTQ and I was in about face theater and I went to a, a public school that was a gifted program. So it pulled across the entire city. I had the most amazing, diverse class of children myself to be with, but it, we weren't where we are now. It wasn't 2022 and we weren't talking about it the same way, but I know that Knox must have been. They must have somehow created some space to be inside some conversations earlier than a lot of spaces. And I'm proud of that. I'm really proud of where my parents are also Knox grads. So I'm a oh, really? legacy. Yeah. And you said your mom is an educator as well. She is. She's the principal of Spectrum. Again, a very common theme with educators we have on this. You know, I'm not a teacher myself, but like also like I work, I'm an education reporter and my mom and my stepmom are teachers and so many people we have on there, like both of their parents are teachers or all of their siblings. It's a very common thing. I don't know if you were one of those people that was like playing school and like teaching to stuffed animals as a kid, but that's another thing that comes up a lot. Absolutely that. So, I mean, I have a legacy. My grandmother was a teacher. She actually taught in the first integrated school in Michigan. Um, no on my mom's side. Then my great grandmother was the first ever female professor at Roosevelt University. She was a piano teacher and a, and a music teacher. And so, you know, there's really a legacy of, of that in my family. Um, and yes, I actually, in, dorkily in sixth grade, I started a theater company. It was a Shakespeare theater company. I got an Illinois Arts Council grant. Um, it was called the Young Shakespeare Artist, I think. We did King okay. Lear. I don't know why my little heart wanted King Lear so badly, but my mother cut the script for us and we performed it in a backyard in Rogers Park and the Chicago Tribune came and took a picture of my friend, Rebecca Strauss, a sixth grade Jewish girl with long red hair in a purple robe playing King Lear, going, howl, howl, let me not be mad. Like, like it was just, and I, it was because I was determined and I ran that theater group for four or five more years. I did Guys and Dolls, I did Into the Woods, I wrote reviews. I've directed over like 30 productions at this point in my life because I've just, I started so young and people, even children my own age, it wasn't pretend school. My friends just showed up and kind of listened to me, you know, and like we all had fun together. So, yes. Are you still involved with, with theater still? Or I actually applied to do through the 21st Century Learning and the Boys and Girls Club that comes yeah. after school. I submitted an application for next year to offer theater to those kids. So like as a motivator, once they get their work done, they could come. So I'm hoping, knock on wood, that that happens. If that happens, you better believe that I'm going to be there. I had a brief experience. I, I took one college class in Shakespearean acting and got to do a little little Hamlet, got to do a little Romeo and Juliet. It was very, very fun. You know, people underestimate once you know, and our, our Elizabeth Crampota was really terrified when Kara and I said, we're going to do Shakespeare fourth quarter. It's what's right for poetry. And I want to get a reputation in RPS where those high school teachers go, dang, who was your language arts teacher yeah. <laughs> when Shakespeare comes around? Because kids really kind of understand it. I want that. Because if you just, for your first time in high school, you're never going to get it. You, you got you got to build some exposure to it, you know, and some willingness and readiness but it is silly and it's a little raunchy and it's, it's fun and it's, it's human, you know, and if you can bring that out, man, oh, Sam, my kids get into it. They do. That's awesome. Yeah. I remember, I think in high school, we like literally read it out of like a Shakespeare textbook and we're just like silently reading Romeo and Juliet. And I was like, what is this? What is going on? This is terrible. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs>
Oh, Romeo, Romeo, where for art thou? It doesn't move one, does no, it? No, no, it does not. Yeah, you know, it's interesting with you with your your mom being an educator. Like uh, one of the questions that we always ask people on this show is that you know we have a lot of educators that get nominated to be on this show, and usually it's because you know they, they people find them to be very inspirational or be doing really great work. And I'm always curious to ask like our teachers. I'm sure that there are people in your life over the course of your education journey, probably up to, <laughs> including your mother, that are maybe some of the reasons that you went into education in the first place. I, I'd imagine. Oh man, yeah. Well, Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities, his his writing, his narrative in that gripped me by the throat and said, elementary ed, you know, like elementary ed. And and in that way that he was a sociologist and a writer and, and he just he told the right story. He um, went around to I believe like some of the lowest and some of the highest funded school districts in the country around the early nineties. That sounds yeah, right. It was and that's the thing is it was the same time he was writing about the same time I was in school and so it was this sense of shock and overwhelm like other children were getting this while I was getting this and that deep sense of injustice just had to be righted it had you know like I felt that call it had to be righted um and then you know my sixth grade teacher sixth grade was a good year for me and she taught us Shakespeare and she was just enough sassy, you know, and enough smart. And I actually, when I went back and student taught, she had moved to fourth grade and I got to kind of learn to student teach alongside her again. Um, her name was Miss Barr and she just, she was really an outstanding person. And I'm, I'm trying to think like, there's been people, um, professors, you know, I, I won't forget my Knox College um, advisor. His name was Stephen Schrote. And he actually had worked on creating the Common Core Standards, which there's so much like different opinion about. But I'll tell you, I don't think it's bad to have a national idea of maybe what kids should be able to do, even if people are confused on what that is. It's not a, it's a good idea, you know, that's in my humble opinion. But he just had a way of being a man who was present with children and younger children in really kind ways and really soft-spoken ways that showed you how you could get attention. And he used to do this little thing with his hair and I just could like see him. There's something in mannerisms that um, they carry over, they speak about people. So those are people who come to mind. And then lastly, right now, moving to Rockford and doing social justice work, there is a woman here named Ellen Amer. Don't know if you've heard of her, but you should because she is a leader in a lot of the social justice activism roots, and she helped found something called the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation here in Rockford, and it's an amazing place based on Martin Luther King Jr.'s ideas of how to do this work, and she is, uh, she is currently my mentor. I just look to her for what it is and how we create belongingness and community, and she's actually trying to have the first um, restorative justice court for adolescents here in Rockford. She's worked closely with the only one that exists in Chicago and been trying to bring with McNamara an alternative court for kids, which is, you know, the most important work there is because pipeline to prison system, isn't that what we're trying to? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, melding that with, you know, looking at specific data of, you know, inequalities and what they look like in your particular school district. I know that that was something, one of the things that you learned from your mom was how to use data in a school setting like that. I love it. I was really terrified this year. This was my first year to put my, you know, put it where you say you got it. And I don't know for sure that meaningful relational creative learning yields test results. I know that people of my belief in academia say that, 
I know there's a lot of literature that says that, but it's never, and you know what? Every story you want to be when you want to be that teacher says it's possible, but you don't know if you're going to get that because you can't demand that from human beings. And my therapy taught me that you can't demand change. You can't, how, how silly of us to think we can demand children to change a certain amount in a certain time frame. Have you ever tried to potty train a child? Good luck. You know, so finding my own sense of ego and identity and hope and belief and trust and getting to really, my, my colleagues knew I really cared about this data. And I mean, I actually had a fight outside my room where I had to physically restrain someone. And then she came into my room. I won't scream how loud she was screaming, but she was screaming like an inpatient unit. And then my kids had to test immediately after that. And I had people in my building who blamed that fight on why their test scores were so bad. They said, well, do you know what happened? In the eighth grade, there was a fight and that affected us. And they were in the sixth grade and I'm like, it was in my room. And it didn't, my kids still came back. That room had, there was my honors group, 75% growth. And, and, and it's substantial to say those numbers because again, how can you guarantee kids can grow? But to do that number, it shows that you did something. You did something. Yeah, and it was something like you said that this year for you felt like a see what we got here, and that like initially going into the the school year it was somewhat disoriented, and you really kind of weren't sure how things were going to shake out right away, and it took maybe a few quarters before things really started getting rolling for you. Absolutely, you can expect that. I told myself, I promised myself, I was actually going to just keep my mouth shut for the first year. I said, Aubrey, just do whatever they're doing. I really because I kind of know teacher culture enough and I understand and also you need to learn I'm humble enough to know I actually I really did need to learn but um you know you got to make it your own that's how I'll say it. you got to make it your own or else what are you doing and you know helping the kids make it their own that's the point and that's what Rockford wants what Rockford Public Schools and what the superintendent have clearly communicated is they want children to feel safe valued and loved so that they can do their best and they are providing food they're providing summer opportunities they are providing every, they're providing new alternative, you know, discipline codes that are coming. They're trying. I, I feel like it's easy to give public schools a lot of, of harshness. I'm someone who's always going to want to give them credit. They're doing a lot right. Not everything, but a lot. One of the things that you guys did this school year that, that we had talked about in the past was this kind of curriculum model that you were working on called uh, Plan, Do, Study, Act. And there might be some people that are aware of what that means. There might be some people that are hearing that for the first time and are kind of confused by it. So really quick, Aubrey, could you give people a brief explainer on what that means? Sure. So Plan, Do, Study, Act is just a process for um, planning what you want to do and doing it and then reflecting on how you did. So if you were going to build something, you look at the instructions and lay out the space right? And you decided you'd go along and start building. And then you decide if you followed the instructions correctly or not, right? You'd review your work and realize the Ikea directions were upside down or right? these goofy things. And then, and then you sit on the piece of furniture and you decide if it's, if it's worked or not. Um, so this question is, how do you apply that very basic principle of learning? Very simple thing. And of course, pharma, you know, which is where PDSA comes from, the medical industry does very specific things with it as far as targeted outcomes, what they want to achieve, how they look at data. Rockford was using it, um, and what I was instructed from Susan Fumo was for teachers to think about their individual units and courses of study. So if I'm gonna teach how to understand characterization and what is direct and indirect and dynamic or flat characters, what is that vocabulary? 
What am I going to have the kids do to practice it? And how am I going to know that they've really achieved it? What's it going to look like? And it's supposed to be an overview of that. And so when I came in, I saw a lot of people using test scores. Like, well, you took a pretest and you got a, as a class, you got a 40%. And now after my unit, you've got an 80%. And it's like, what does that say? That, that information is not very useful. Um, and, and it doesn't actually get at the work in any kind of meaningful way. And, but it's all people have been instructed to do. It's not their fault. They really are trying to do their best, but there just wasn't um, another lens to see this. And I brought in that therapeutic lens because I had to, in North Shore you know, Community Hospital, I had to write a burp note, behavior, intervention, response, and plan every single night for every single patient. That's what insurance required of me. So for me, I saw where PDSA is real life. It is real life, you know, and um, we turned that over to the kids. We said, hey, here's the standard. Here's what you're supposed to learn. You're supposed to be able to know the parts of prefix, suffix, and root and identify them. How do you want to do that? Make a blocket, make a, make a podcast, make a video, make your own slide, do a presentation. I don't know, but when we'd slowly introduce them to these different types of resources. So it wasn't like you're on your own, we'd scaffolded it. But slowly we released them. And then we eventually got to a point after six, seven, eight weeks, I didn't even need to say anything. I would literally, in a, in a hundred minute block that people complain about, I would go, bum, 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 bum. You know what to do, the time is yours. That was my phrase. You know what to do, the time is yours. And they would just go. And it was beautiful. It was cool. And so and we're planning on trying to scaffold it better into next year and start at the beginning and how to build it out so that it's even better. We'll see. Yeah. And you guys got projects and presentations and audio visual stuff about <laughs> all sorts of topics to explain that core idea that they were getting at that piece of curriculum. And it's, it's fascinating that you guys also like it, it's not like this even happened for the entire school year necessarily, right? Letting them take control in the third quarter, the beginning, the second half of the year after they'd come back and we'd said, OK, the first half of the year was post COVID world. We're establishing that this is a learning community and this is what it looks like. But quickly enough, we released the reins. We said, OK, you know, you do. And that made all the difference. Student after student after student. I did exit interviews with each and every student I had. So my last two days, I just sat down, I put a movie on and then I called one by one. And I said, you know, let me give you some feedback about us, close the relationship and you give me some feedback. And kids said, Miss Barnett, you really got us. You really cared about us. You really cared about like, and it just, it was, it wasn't one or two or three or four. And after a while, you really get the message. Listen, adolescents love talking about themselves. They're their <laughs> own favorite topic. It's developmentally true. Okay. So you take advantage of that and you use it and you motivate. And it, it made the difference because when it came time, when I, what I did is I said, look at what the test is telling you. It's going to test you. I actually went to the map site. I highlighted the exact language of the, and it's this frame of the questions. It literally says it the way the questions will be said. And I had them look through it and say, what do I know like the back of my hand and which ones do I not know? And then they went back and really strategized over those specific things. I think it's because they looked at the language of the test. And I was instructed to do that for my clinical licensure exam for the state of Illinois. And I took a test prep expensive course to learn how to do that. So again, it's my education that taught me we're prepping these kids all wrong. It's not test prep, it's understanding the test. It's actually 
knowing what you're doing, like playing the game of baseball instead of just going out and throwing a ball and swinging a bat, right? I mean, we're not actually giving kids the benefit of the doubt to help them achieve it all. Jeez, yeah. I, you know, it's, it's fascinating, too, to talk about this within the lens of it being a, you know, COVID school environment where, like, obviously, the you know, you could feel the, the pandemic ripple effects even this year. I mean, there were plenty of times where, you know, schools, you guys had lost a lot of kids for uh, a couple days due to having to, to quarantine and you had teachers that were out at a lot of points of the school year. So very much was a COVID school year still this year. And I'm fascinated, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation about your time at Spectrum where, you know, during that early pandemic period where everyone was really putting the plane together while it was in the air that you got to do this cool experimentation with, you know, audio visuals and these kids putting together a podcast and figuring out how to do that in real time. And now fast forward to now where things are in a more like, 2019 slightly normal capacity the learning environment is pretty similar to what it was post-pandemic and we're all thinking like okay how can we take the lessons that we've learned over the last two years and then apply them to education now because it seems weird to go through this whole experience and then not change anything about the way that we do things do you see you know pdsa and and this type of work with uh, you know, handing kids the reins and really emphasizing different digital presentations and allowing them a digital permit as, as kind of a direct link back to what you guys learned teaching during the pandemic? You're not going to like my answer. <laughs> you no, know, I don't. Um, I don't think people learned very much at all during the pandemic. I'm really disappointed. Um, I know my own soul searching of where I thought we might leave after such a crushing, terrifying, real bout with our own death. Um, that we would come out kinder and we would come out wanting to do more. And I think people have actually come out more isolated and enjoying it, more able to order everything online and not going back to it otherwise. And um, I think we're seeing things in our own political life worldwide. I actually read an article from MSNBC about teachers in Russia who are fleeing because they're actually creating a Russian Hitler youth, if you will. I mean, they're forcing teachers into this. They're changing history and, and making teachers lie. It's crazy. So we're, we're living in tough times. So this pandemic world, what are we supposed to learn? Well, I have to say Spectrum's doing it right. And it's why I'll send my kids there and fight for it and be on the education board, even if I'm teaching in RPS, because they're going to true multi-age. Elizabeth Crampota is teaching RPS summer school. She called me yesterday through the roof excited. She goes, Aubrey, I finally get your one room schoolhouse model. I have K to eighth graders all together and the olders help the youngers and the youngers. I'm like, I've tried to like, I want to go back to indigenous learning. I think that we've really totally forgotten. And we what we should have learned is connection and love. And we didn't. Right. And we had like, if ever there was an opportunity where things were naturally p- torn down completely and you had to rebuild them back to something new, it seems like more often than not, we just kind of tried to reassemble them back to the exact spot that we had before, which again, seems like what a wild missed opportunity. Yeah, we well, some of us knew when people said, back to normal, back to normal. There were many, many people who used to post early on, what was normal? What what, what normal were you referring to that was so good? There was a right. long time. There was also a time in 
let's say it was April of 2020, when there became a very popular meme amongst, meme amongst social justice people of just wait for what was coming with the Amazon ordering. Just wait to see how your brain will be changed and you will become a different person with how you do day-to-day -day interactions. And dang if they weren't right, because I got a McDonald's app or Iron Points now, and it bings me and reminds me and invites me in a way I never probably would have because I never would have thought, oh, I'll order it and sit in a, in a spot. You know, that had to become a thing. Right. Well, I mean, even like looking at it strictly through the lens of education too, right? Like not only did the structure of education change, but like the way, the time and the place that, and the space that students learned completely changed. And, you know, we had all, you'd assume that based on those, you know, two years or year that they were learning remotely or learning in a hybrid that we would able be able to take a look at that and be like, okay, well, what, what, are there any silver linings here? Is there anything that worked? Any small nugget of useful information that we could then take with us to, you know, make the system that we have better? And I don't know how much we've done that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that technology is not a wonderful solution. It's paradoxical. It's always yes and. It's never one right. or the other. It's how you do it. But relationships, like again, Flynn, amazing. Next year, they're going to do an advisory every day, 30 minutes, small group, one adult, 15 kids focused on social emotional. They're supposedly bringing in recess. Oh my gosh. Again, I feel like the universe gave me rock for public schools in a glory moment. I'm so appreciative of what they're doing. Again, even knowing there's certain things that might disorient or confuse me, that's going to be any district. Um, so I'm just really, really grateful for those things that I see that are hopeful. So it's not that we haven't learned, but maybe, maybe like you said on the hero's journey, it's about relearning and reapplying and it's really a cycle. It's not once um, spiral curriculum. Yeah. And maybe the lessons aren't even, you know, what people would think that they would be about technology. Like you said, it's about the return to relationships and social emotional foundation of learning. And I mean, maybe that's it. Yeah, it seems like there is more more willingness on districts, large districts parts to put funding in that. And a lot of times money speaks. So that's a value that counts. I don't want to take up your whole morning, but the, one of the last questions I always like to ask anyone at the end of my interviews is this idea of like, I'm like looking for my own blind spots. What's something about this that's more important than people realize? So just in general, I'll give you the floor for something open-ended about your perspective on teaching and education is there anything that you just wish more people understood when it came to teaching? Something that you think is way more important than people might realize who aren't thinking about this stuff every single day? One day we will have the science and technology to prove that hormones and emotions are actually, even though they're maybe not tangible or objects of sorts, they have energy and they have presence and they make incredible, incredible impacts on, on spaces, on physical spaces. And um, children come in with certain energies and adults come in with certain energies and people know it and they say it, but there, there's going to be at some point in our time science to prove it. You know, I, I can't do that research. I don't have it. I could try and dig it up, but it's not there yet. But we who know, know it's there. And we have to start paying attention to that. We are highly sensitive beings who take in way more information. 70 to 90% of communication is nonverbal. And we don't understand scientifically what that nonverbal means, but it matters. 
and it's going to connect us in very deep ways where we might be able to tap into empathy and compassion and maybe we'll really evolve as a species if we can do that there you go i feel like there's no better place to end it than empathy and compassion right Good. Well, I'm glad that's, yeah. I was a little intimidated. I didn't know what this was going to be about. Oh, really? but we were going <laughs> to go, but I, I, I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Aubrey. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe. Leave us a rating. Share it. It really does help us get even more educators, even more perspectives on this show. Please do subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show sent right to your email inbox. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage at WNIJ.org. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear every single episode on this show. I've been your host, Peter Madlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. Thanks.